Hi, I'm Spencer Ziegler. Hi, I'm Serena Halstead. Hi, and I'm Melissa Smith, and welcome to Data Lit, a podcast for educators by educators. So Serena and Spencer, if you all remember, one of the topics we have been hoping to touch on in the past is that of rubrics because of the role they play in today's classrooms, especially around the time when we did that episode on performance assessments. And so while we have read many books on rubrics, one of our favorites is How to Create and Use Rubrics for Formative Assessments and Grading by Dr. Susan Brockhart. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Brockhart with us to kick off our learning around rubrics and how best to use them. Sue, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So before we get into our discussion, Sue, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. My work has been a journey. I'm toward the end of my career now, so it's been a long journey. I started out as a school teacher, and then I went back to graduate school, got, got my PhD, and became a college professor. And then through a series of actually very happy, good family moves and such, um, I ended up being a consultant. And that is, which was now, if you're counting, that's the third, third of my career. That turned out to be how I ended up writing books like the one you referenced, the rubrics book. And through that, ended up doing professional development. And now at the end of my career, I do mostly writing. I don't do too much in-person professional development anymore. Uh, But it's, it's always been focused on classroom assessment. My degree is in assessment and evaluation, all kinds, not just classroom. But I found myself one of the few former classroom teachers in that program. And I kept thinking of classroom applications as I was studying. And I also kept thinking, what, uh uh-oh, what did I do that I would do differently now that I know? So that became my career, uh, sort of assessment, classroom assessment mostly, sometimes how that connects to large-scale assessment. Uh, Because as the former classroom teacher in me, uh, my main concern isn't really assessment, it's learning. And you want your students to learn, and assessment is a big piece of that. And I think we see that in your book, which is why it's one of our favorites, because it has that element of your writing from a teacher perspective. And so, you know, all of us, we are all classroom teachers, and so that's what, you know, you're reading it you're like, oh, this is so practical. I can put this into you. So I think you're one of our favorite authors when it comes to the practicality of putting strategies and practices into place, because it, you can see right away that it comes from that perspective. So thank you for that. So I'll get started. In that book that we referenced, you stated that rubrics should not confuse the learning outcomes to be assessed with the tasks used to assess it. So how would you advise educators to focus on the learning outcomes or the objectives rather than the task or the product? That's a good question. And that quote comes out of a section in the book where I'm I'm trying to caution people against what happened. Or, or not, I haven't seen this quite so badly recently, but that's good. <laughs> people used to treat rubrics like directions in a box. Mm-hmm. They would draw their little chart. Oh, yeah. And then they would put basically the directions down the side. Typically, I don't know why down the side, but that's how they did it. Yeah. It would have been across the top. So the kids then were basically fulfilling requirements of the assignment as they looked at the rubrics. Mm-hmm. And that typically includes things like, you know, how many pages or sections or sometimes performance tasks have several 
chunks in them, you know, so how did you do the map? And then what did you write about the map? And which may or may not actually match the learning outcome, standard curricular goal, whatever you have in whatever one has in one's district, there's always some reason you're doing the assessment and it's to see if the students learned something. It's not necessarily to see if they could do the little project you came up with to get evidence of that learning. And so the, the way to write the criteria in the rubric is to look not at the task, but at the learning outcome and use the things that would be evidence of that learning, whatever it is, math problem solving or uh, some kind of science, scientific knowledge and reasoning or how to write an essay in English, whatever it is. And then the student's response to the task is some sort of product, sure, but, or often is anyway, but you're looking at the product for evidence of learning, not for evidence of following directions or doing the requirements for the assignment. Now there's two little, I mean, seems that seems reasonable, but there's two ways that can can cause a problem that I think uh, might be worth thinking about. One is nobody wants the kids not to follow the directions. Of course they want them to follow the directions. So you need to have some way to assess that for the kid. Um, Typically a little checklist will do it. You know, do you have a title page? Did you whatever? Not in the rubric you're grading from or even giving your formative feedback from mostly, but just as a part of the assignment sheet or for little kids, Mm. these would be typically short. They might be uh, on the board for older kids. They can check each other's, you know, does your partner's project have a, you know, a graph or whatever it's supposed to have. Is that all? And if it isn't, then it's not ready to hand in yet. Uh, So that that is assessed clearly, but it's not assessed in, in, in the rubric about the learning because no science standard says students will learn how to put a title page on their lab report. Uh, right, but, right. But they have to do that in some places, you know. So, so it gets assessed, it gets feedback informally, get it as good as you can, and then turn it in. And then don't count that stuff in the question to yourself how, uh, what evidence of, of learning is in this. The other, um, I, I said there were two things. Uh, right. Second thing is you have to make sure that your task actually yields evidence of the learning outcome. Mm-hmm. And since this is not a podcast on performance assessment tasks, we probably won't talk much about it. But if when you take away all the requirements for the assignment, there's not much there left to assess, you've probably got a task that's asking students to do cool things, maybe, mm-hmm. but, but not, not the evidence. Of the, and the one in the book that I used was a, a very elaborate social studies one where the students were supposed to be learning about how and why people draw rules Mm -hmm. for games, but also for life. And it's a very important sort of sociology kind of concept. And, but but the little task had to make a game and then it had to play the game and it had to do all this stuff. None of which actually elicited any evidence of their learning how and why when people get together and need a structured interaction, they set up, rules. So that was a rubric problem, yes, but it was also a task problem. And the task could easily have been modified to include some of that, but it 
as presented, it, it didn't. So to sum up the advice is when you write those rubrics for feedback, if it's formative or for grading, if you're or the same rubric for both is a good way to go. Make sure that, that what you're focusing on is the learning outcome, however stated as a standard or whatever. And then for the directions and the requirements for the assignment, use a checklist or, or a peer, ed, peer strategy or assignment sheet or whatever is appropriate for your age of kids and uh, assess that, but assess that outside of, of the for learning. And then uh, I guess I sh we should have started with make sure the task you're attaching the rubrics to actually does yield evidence of the learning you need evidence of. There's a sentence for you. I think I like, I think when you first began your giving us advice, one of the things I wrote down is, you know, as a teacher asking yourself, what is it that you want to know about learning? That um, should be the beginning of any assessment, even a classroom test, which I know we're not here to talk about either, but right. anytime you construct an assessment, that's where you start. What mm -hmm. is it you want to know? What is it you want evidence of, which mm -hmm. is typically mm -hmm. some kind of learning outcome, small or large, depending on the. And that's where you start with your design work or creating work or however you, your teachers think about creating an assessment or selecting an assessment. Same right. thing. You don't have to write your own if there's a good one out there, but you do have to know what you want evidence of because that's mm -hmm. the, the um, basis on which you select or don't select that assessment. Or sometimes you select that assessment, but you modify it because it doesn't give you exactly the evidence you want. Same with rubrics. You don't have to write your own rubric every time, but you do have to look at the ones you select and say, is this the stuff I want to know about? Right. Yeah, and it seems it's so easy to get consumed by the product that I, I think it's very natural to, to without realizing it, kind of cater the rubric around that. Um, I think about um, uh, actually a former guest of the podcast, Rick Wormley, and his his book, uh, Was It Fair Isn't Always Equal, kind of mm -hmm. says uh, two questions. Can a student understand the concept yet score very poorly on the rubric? Or can a student understand very little about the, the content, the learning standards, yet score well on the rubric. I think those questions can help us to make sure we're not focusing on the task as opposed to what we should be focusing on in the learning outcomes. Absolutely. And Rick's, uh, Rick's book and his advice has always seemed to me very sound. When I do professional development on rubrics, I have a, a heartrending slide of a, a kid who wrote a fabulous poem and the rubrics were all about, you know, how you spelled things and uh, did you mm. put pictures on your poster? And it was, and, and the, the woman didn't even write the rubric. She got it off the internet and he scored very poorly. But it is a beautiful poem about who I am as a little fifth yeah. grade boy. And a, a poem that was actually pretty so-so. It wasn't horrible, but just very bland, had simple little words yep. in it we scored real well because you know the the I, I i pretend i don't know if it's true but i pretend when i do the workshop that this little girl was a teacher pleaser and she went through the rubric yeah. <laughs> uh, because you could because that's what those compliance yeah rubrics bring out they don't bring out learning they bring out Ability to follow instructions. Yeah. Which is great. I want kids yeah. to follow instructions, but that's not, the learning rubrics are not how you do that. Right. right. So Sue, 
some great advice there makes me start thinking about some misconceptions that, you know, we might have in how we are using the rubrics. So in your book, you warned of some misconceptions teachers encounter when working with rubrics. Can you share what these misconceptions are? And do you have tips for how we could avoid these misconceptions? Yes. And the first the first and biggest we've already talked about, and that's a misconception is that rubrics are directions in a box that help kids comply with my, my orders and I get nice, clean assignments. Another is that uh, performance level descriptions should include counts as three grammar errors, or has two grammar errors. So if you need to count, give them a test and count how many times they can do something, how many times they put the colon in the middle of the sentence in the right place. That's okay. But when you start counting things in rubrics, you mismeasure kids. What if a kid had two grammar errors in a fabulously written piece with great big uh, multi-syllable words and complex sentences? And another kid wrote very simple sentences in one-syllable words and had only one grammar error. The, actually, the better writer is the first kid, but he would get the lower rubric score. Counting mismeasures kids. In, with very, very few exceptions, so much so that I want I say never count. If you need to count, there are some things you do not need to count, mostly physical stuff, um, keyboarding words per minute. That's a good score. That's a good way to score. But that's a physical skill. It's not a cognitive skill. And as, as people who went through teacher prep know, Cognitive taxonomies and physical taxonomies are different. So don't count in rubrics, pretty much. And if you're trying to count, you really need to know how, what percentage of the time somebody reliably puts that colon in the right place. Give them a 10-sentence quiz and see if they get 80% or better. Because that's what that kind of assessment is good at. You wouldn't necessarily use a rubric for something. Uh, and a third misconception. So we've got two misconceptions, directions in a box, Counting as, as a, um, people like it because it's, they think it's clear. Although I can't tell you how many times teachers have given me examples and I count different numbers of grammar errors or whatever it is that they missed one or, or something. It, that's, that's, it's just, it doesn't work. Uh, and the third one is sometimes people call rubrics something that's like a criterion with a scale like five, four, three, two, one with no descriptions just for, if there are descriptions, they're just excellent, good, fair, poor. That, those aren't rubrics. Those are rating scales. If you want to rate behavior, if you want to measure behavior, um, frequency rating scales are great. Brought a pencil to class. Always. Frequently. Sometimes. Never. But again, that's a behavior. Rating scales are not really good for the kind of cognitive learning outcomes that we're talking about here with, with learning outcomes. That's where you need not only the level num name or number, but the performance level description. And that's just a misconception. I mean, that's a vocabulary thing. No, that's a rating scale. You just need to learn that. So we're coming to the end of our podcast. And so I know you talked about you're coming to the end of your career. So if you were to rewrite another version of your book, is there anything you would add to the book 
given you know what you've seen, how education has changed, how practices have changed, would you write or add anything new? Yeah, there are two things. One is I would connect rubrics more clearly with learning targets Ooh, or okay. learning outcomes. The criteria that one selects are the secret sauce for learning targets. It's not enough to say, a kid can say, I can do this. You, the kid needs to know what will it look like when I do this. And uh, so whether it's rubrics for smaller assignments or larger rubrics that they're aiming for, for their ultimate final display of the whole standard or whatever it is, those criteria need to connect to the standards learning outcomes, as we've been talking, and they need to connect to daily learning targets. And I would have made a bigger deal about that in the book. Uh, the second thing is sometimes people have asked me uh, for a connection between final rubrics, final project rubrics, and the daily criteria that you, that you use when you teach. So this is more of a con connection between assessment, formative assessment for instruction and the final grade. And there are, if you have a final outcome that you want, a big project and the kid has, has a rubric that's, that's where the criteria hooked to standards, you don't teach them all that in one lesson, but, but they need criteria for everything they do all along the way. So how the, and there are several ways to connect rubrics for daily work or rubrics for work after a small sequence of lessons and bigger rubrics that might be for a final project. I'll just mention them because I, I don't have, we don't have really want to talk about them all now, but sometimes they're the same. Things are simple enough. Sometimes it's one criterion at a time, like the, um, the six trait writing people will say, okay, we're just going to teach ideas for a while until they're good at that. And then now, now we're going to teach organization. And so sometimes it's, you, you, you're still aiming for that rubric, in this case, the sixth grade writing rubric, uh, math problem solving rubrics sometimes are taught this way. But the, the daily lesson focus is one at a time. And so those are the that's the criterion you use for that lesson. And you kind of let the others just sort of slide, not for, for good, but for this lesson. Uh, sometimes they roll up. So, you know, you teach your middle school students about how to use colons several different ways and semicolons several different ways. And then at the end, the big final piece of writing or whatever it is, there's just a, uh, a criterion called punctuation or even bigger mechanics. But during the teaching, they've had little rubrics, maybe for little assignments that talked about the smaller chunks. And then sometimes it's additive. Um, so we teach about one criteria a day and we hold that because we know that now. And the next group day, we teach about another criterion. Uh, I've had some uh, arts teachers, uh, visual art teacher, for instance, teaching landscapes. And so there's composition. And then there's how to draw the actual things, like the trees and the rocks. And then there's uh, some things about uh, organizing. Well, that's composition. There's some things about how you finish the painting and the colors go together and all that. And typically, they start with composition. They teach like fill up the whole page and where to put the horizon line and all that stuff. And then next week we, we talk, learn how to draw trees that don't look like broccoli and whatever, but we haven't forgotten that we put these on a composition. We add that to the, 
And then the final project and, and so on. And then the final project is you do a landscape and it has to have all this stuff. And you it's rolled up additively. I would put more about that. I guess that's rubrics in both assessment and instruction. And the book as it stands is rubrics in assessment and grading. And more grading. Assessment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. some thoughts I've had since when, when was this 2012 when it came out? Yep. Um, that I would do not maybe enough to revise a whole book, but there'd be another chapter in there. Yeah. It's a great do, you, do you ever have teachers asking you, like, I think one of the things I heard you mention is making sure that you're working, you know, collaboratively with others. Cause you know, you can, it, it's to me in, in my experience, it's been better when I am working or I share or work on a rubric or create a rubric with another uh, colleague. And one of the things, you know, we always kind of talk about is, you know, refining a rubric. A rubric doesn't have to be set in stone. You know, you go back and you tweak it and refine and make sure it's giving you the best evidence of what you're trying to collect. How do you know when you have a good one? That's a good question. Um, Typically, you know when you have a good one when you can reliably, and I mean that in the sense of, like, consistently, I can, I look, I, I can, that's a two. I'm, I'm sure it's a two. Um, that, that, that the descriptions assist you in categorizing things where you really think they should be. And that the final outcome is a description of the student's work on your rubric scale that you're comfortable with, that you think is a, a sound. That doesn't mean everybody gets fours all the time. That means I think this this four, that's a reasonable outcome for that. And you didn't have to stand there and stare at it and look at the words and say, well, is that this or is it that? Because if that's a that's a symptom that your performance level descriptions aren't all that descriptive or or if they are, they're vague. I, I guess that's that's a traditional reliability and validity take on the rubric experience. Um, you really should uh, eventually come up with a rubric that both you and the students can use. Right. Typically, teacher rubrics, when they start out, they end up being more of how the teacher would describe something just because, well, who wrote it, you know? Right. Uh, but eventually, good rubrics also, in addition to this kind of soundness of, of results thing, quality, they also should, should have the quality that they can be used by students during their learning. Because if you can't get there, there are a whole lot easier ways to, to grade stuff than doing a rubric. Okay. You know, if all you need is a grade, give me a point scheme. <laughs> give me some test items to grade. Right, right. That the, whole, the reason for the rubric and for all that description is that it can be used formatively. And so uh, uh, the, the second criterion for me, in addition to giving you sound results, sound information, would be that you get it to the point where students can use it for self-assessment, peer assessment, for thinking as they're working, for all of that, easily enough that, that they can actually do that and it, it makes some sense to them and it makes their work better. Thank you so much. I'm glad that we were able to kind of talk about the student piece because I think for a long time, you know, a lot of people think, like you said, that rubrics are just for teachers, but like you said, it is good when students are also involved in that process as well. So that they know, you know, what what is needed. You can use, I mean, there's no, you could get sound information out of teacher-facing rubrics. It's just, that's the hard way to do it. That's a lot of work to go to for something that only the teacher 
can use. Yeah. The genius is that, that it shares with the kids a vision of what they're aiming for. And that helps with learning, instruction, self-regulation, right. all that stuff. All right. Agreed. So, Sue, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us on this topic. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you to Sue for, you know, reiterating some of the things that we might be thinking we're doing right, but it's not so much. So thank you for identifying some of those I things. didn't say that. Yeah. All of the in your school district are doing everything very well. That's yes. including listening to podcasts, right? Yes. But uh, like all, our teachers are reflection practitioners and everybody's always trying to think, how can I do this better? How can I do my job better? Because at the end goal is making sure that our students learn. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Welcome. So as usual, if you have any questions, comments, or further notes for us about this episode or any other episodes, feel free to reach us at www.wcpss.net forward slash data lit. We want to thank Sue for taking the time to share her knowledge and expertise with us. We want to also thank Enlo High School student Maya Smith for the music. And as always, this is not goodbye, but see you next time. Take care. Bye.